0: good morning we are finishing up malachi this morning we'll start in chapter three and we'll go all the way through chapter 4. And thank you, Stuart, for praying this morning. And it's exciting to have you back. Looking forward to you preaching again. But I am excited to finish this series. It's, it's been a joy to work through Malachi. It's been a blessing to have this opportunity to go through a, an entire book. Thank you for sticking with me and putting up with my quirks as we are about to finish let's go because malachi ends in this great crescendo and if the lord blesses me hopefully i i will do it justice but let us finish this book starting in chapter 3 with verse 13 your words have been hard against me says the lord but you say uh, how have we spoken against you You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be as stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out, leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will return the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let us pray. Dearly Father, you are a king and you are the Lord of hosts. I pray that this morning you may turn our hearts to you, that we may grow in our faith, and that we may see your majesty and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the great things about being youth pastors is you get to have the important conversations. Like, who is the greatest superhero of all time? Uh, you always have a long conversation you begin fighting marvel versus dc but everybody knows that the true answer of greatest superhero is not really up for debate it's superman <laughs> superman always wins superman always saves the day he's pretty much undefeated he maintains a positive outlook he he's an alien who has come to humanity and sees that the goodness in this and that he tries to help Now, when I was a kid, the Christopher Reeve Superman movies were some of the best superheroes movies ever made. And they were always told the stories in an interesting way because stories are usually from the superhero's perspective. But if you get into the comics, they they do vary a little bit more than the movies. They'll tell stories from the people who who are rescued, from, from their perspective. Now that's really how you can tell who the greatest superhero is. If you're in danger, if your life is being threatened by some supervillain, which superhero would you want to show up? Because if it's a, a superhero who tends to fail kind of like Spider-Man, if he shows up, you're kind of like, ah, maybe I'll make it through. But if Superman shows up, you know the day is saved. The game's over. Superman will win. You might even be in peril, but you're going to relax a little bit and you might pull out some popcorn and like, I can watch now. It's more interesting to look at the superhero from a villain's perspective. If you're a villain and you're trying to conquer the world or do some nefarious deed, which superhero do you not want to show up? Which superhero do you think, you know what, maybe I stand a chance with? Superman shows up, you just kind of like, well, that was a good try. Uh, it's over. I think, when, I think when we look at our Savior, it, the way we see Jesus, the way we relate to Jesus changes uh, in our relationship to him. It, it matters. If you're a believer and you see Jesus and you're being told that Christ is coming... You're going to celebrate, because here's the one who comes who takes away our guilt, the one who takes away our sin, There's the, here's the one who restores us to God. And so you read something like the passage this morning, and you're like, yes! Now if you're a non-believer, or maybe even anti-Jesus, you're, you're, the way you relate to this passage, to the end of Malachi is going to be very different. You might be like, I don't think that's going to happen. Well, is he really going to make all that destruction? Is that what's really going to happen? So yeah, how you relate to Christ drastically changes your view of Jesus. It changes how you approach Scripture. Malachi ends his book on a, in a prophecy that sort of escalates and that reminds us who God is. It reminds us that Jesus is victorious. So, whether you believe in Christ or not, I'm going to tell you this morning that Christ will return, and when he does, it's going to be in full victory. What started at the cross will be finished. And as believers, we are called to live in the light of Christ's victory. As God's people, we are called to live in the light of Christ's victory. Now as we've gone through Malachi, we have seen the questions that the Israelites have posed to the Lord. And usually they're not good. As we've looked at the Israelites, they've gone through the motions of sacrifices. They've uh, asked silly questions. And so at the end here, in Malachi 3, Malachi, quoting the Lord, says this, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, uh, how have we spoken against you? Again, the question like, us? How have we done this? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of your keeping his charge? Or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This is quite the challenge. God begins it, your words have been hard. In other words, they've been stout. They've been strong against God challenging. They're putting the Lord to the test. They're having conversations with one another about the Lord, and those conversations are not guarded. In the same way, when we get with our friends to complain about something, and your friend wanting to relate to you is just going to keep hyping it up, and so all of a sudden, you're just throwing wood on the fire, and what started as something small becomes huge and like a bonfire. Everything just escalates. Likewise, the Israelites are getting together and saying, oh, why should we follow God? He doesn't do anything. It's, it's pointless. Look at, look at the evil people. They're prospering. So what benefit is it to us? They can do whatever they want, and there's no accountability. Why should we be accountable? And then you get to the heart of the matter. There's no profit for us. That's what they're telling themselves. What's in it for me? I might as well do something else. If I'm going to do all this religious stuff, I want something out of it. There's there's no fear there. There's no reverence. There's no honor in those statements is pure selfishness. And it's true. When we, when we do not fear God, uh, we start to reproach the religious life as sort of this means of transaction, as if God has a bill of goods for sale and we are going to go through the motions and the Lord's going to reward us for these things. And we're looking for something immediate. Well, hey, I worshiped this morning. I went to church and I sang. Uh, can, I get, can I get my garden to grow? Can you bless me like that, please? Or, you know, I've said my prayers this week. I've, I even wrote them down in a prayer journal. So why aren't my grades higher? Why am I not getting my raise? I have it here. I can prove it. I have prayed. I've loved the person. Went out of my way. Gave up an afternoon to help somebody I don't even like that much. Why doesn't the Lord make my family relationships easier? Am I not doing the things God asks? Where are these blessings? These are the type of complaints that we begin to fester in our lives if we're not careful in honoring God. Because it's the nature that these complaints are made. Scripture doesn't ban complaining before the Lord. But we do need to come with a sense of respect and honor for instance if i were to go before the session and the sessions are church leadership they made a decision that i didn't think was good for the youth and that i didn't like i'm not going to storm into the room call them a bunch of thoughtless meanie heads and insult them that's not the way to go about it and i'm certainly not going to imply that our leadership is useless the way that the Israelites are implying that the Lord is useless. No, if I'm going to approach the leadership of the church, I want to come with the respect that they deserve. Likewise, if we are going to complain to the Lord, if we're going to vo- voice our fears and our doubts and our troubled hearts, we should go as children going to their parents with this idea of faithfulness and love, acknowledging that the Lord sees the big picture, that the Lord cares for His people, the Lord is sovereign over all things, He's the ruler of all creation, He has crushed evil under His heel. Now, the Lord wants to hear our hearts. We can even see that in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 89, 49-52 and I apologize, I had the slides ready, and apparently I never sent them. But here's a psalmist ending, up, ending Psalm 89. Lord, where is your steadfast love, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointing. Blessed be the Lord. Amen and amen. Now the psalm is much larger than that. There is more praising the Lord, but the psalmist has legit complaints. He's not making things up. There's genuine pain and anguish. And earlier in the psalm he even acknowledged, My life is short and this is difficult. This is hard. So he brings his pain before the Lord, but in a manner that continues to honor God. Likewise, when we approach the Lord, when our doubts and our fears uh, overwhelm us, and we—and I do realize many are hurting here this morning, whether it is our own sins that have brought us down or the sins of others that have adversely affected our life, that have made things difficult, or even if it's just the fallen nature of this world. I know people are hurting. I know there is pain, there is struggle. But the Lord, we have a God who hears our anguish. And we are to go go to Him, to the Lord, because the Father hears the cry. And the Holy Spirit gives us the words to pray. Even if those words are a simple groan of agony, the Holy Spirit carries it to the Lord. So when we do, when we do go before the throne of God, let us remember that it is a throne. Knowing that we have a king and a father who cares for his children. Because there is sometimes a very fine line of acknowledging the pain and anguish than blaming God for the pain and anguish. We don't want to lose sight of who our Father is. We don't, we don't want to lose the sight of the fact that Christ has secured us salvation. See, the Israelites, they've forgotten this. This is why they're... Their their complaints are coming in, and they're saying, these evildoers prosper. I'm getting nothing out of it. What profit is, is, is it to me that I should be faithful? And that's why the Lord re- begins this rebuke, that your words are hard against me. Now, it is a rebuke. I, I realize that there's no point in this passage where... Uh, there is an outright call for repentance, but not all rebukes necessarily need a stated call for repentance. The same way that not all moms need to speak to correct. They can just call a name and look, and then you know I have done something wrong. All God says is, your words have been hard against me. Here's how they've been hard against me. And those that truly fear God, those that truly honor the Lord, they respond. It starts out with this. This is uh, Malachi 3, 16 through 18. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord had paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasure possessions, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Now notice the first response of God's people. Truly God's people, the ones that fear the Lord, they come together. They do not flee. They do not hide out. No, they come together because they realize that God is their king and savior. He is the one who had brought them out of Egypt. He is the one who has brought them back from Babylon. He is the one that has secured their nation. And so they come together. God's people have always gathered together. You know, we do not go through life alone. We are in fellowship with one another. We're a body. We turn to each other. The Lord has made us brothers and sisters. Our faith is not just our own personal relationship with Jesus. It's not just uh, our morning devotional. It's about a body that helps one another. It's about brothers and sisters who walk with each other. When Christ died on the cross and was resurrected, He he made us family. And because of that, we should come to one another. We should be there for one another. We should be unified. Not just with each other here at Westminster, but with the churches across Sumter. We minister together and what brings us together is our fear of the Lord. And by fear, no, I'm saying fear a lot. I don't mean fear like I'm in a scary movie and all of a sudden something monstrous jumps out and I scream very high-pitched. No, fear here is honor and respect, this reverence. This should be natural to the Christian life. It's, it's a part of who we are. It's part of our distinction. And that's what God said, you will be known from those who don't believe, those who do not fear me. And when I was prepping my sermon, I, I did a lot of reading, uh, of course. But I was reading through this passage last week when we were in West Virginia. I took the opportunity as we traveled to the work site because I had six kids with me all buckled up they had nowhere to go and so I was like all right now is a great time to ask them theological questions right after breakfast before they had a chance to really wake up and so I asked them how do you tell a believer from a non-believer now, I had some of our brightest guys, including Xander, who flew in from Germany, and we had Holden there, and Evan Lewis, and some of our cleverest girls. We had Gabby in the van, um, Elizabeth Cohey, and Brenna was rounding, the back seat tri- rounding out that backseat trio. And so we had some really good discussions. They really dove in. I was very proud of them. And they gave some really good answers. And so the question again, how do you distinguish a believer from a non-believer? And some of the answers are ones that I think many people in this congregation would give. They noted service. Christians serve others. Shouldn't that be the mark of service? James says religion that is pure and true is taking care of widows and orphans in the sojourner. Our Sunday school this morning, how do we serve the church? They also brought up Humility. Christians should be humble. Because what do we have to claim? Our claim is that we need someone. That we need help and that we need the Savior. I don't know how we can boast in ourselves if we're going about saying we need Jesus. Surely that's what distinguishes us. The other thing that they brought up, loving others, which is a very good answer. We are told in the New Testament, they will know you by this, by the way that you love one another. Love was just just sort of all-encompassing the way we put others before ourselves. This should be a mark of the Christian. Paul writes long passages on what love is so that Christians may walk in love. And so yes, those are all very much solid marks of what distinguishes a believer and a non-believer. But in a sense, a non-believer can do many of those things. A non-believer can serve. A non-believer can and does do practice humility. There are many non-believers that love others well. The difference between a believer and a non-believer is it stems and it flows forth from this fear, this reverence and this wanting and desire to honor God. See, when Christ is victorious, when Christ conquered death, creation is changed. The pain and sting of what sin does, that's put aside. It's it's not the threat that it used to be. The finality of death is gone because Jesus brings eternal life because Jesus is victorious. This is why the angels praise His name, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is why we will continue to worship on Sunday mornings throughout the week and throughout eternity. It's because God is good and we should honor and revere Him. And that should flow out in the way that we live. It's flow out the way we practice service and humility and love. Because these are the people. That God says he remembers. These are the people where he says, they shall be mine. The ones that fear the Lord. And it is good to remember that through Christ, we, we indeed are not our own, um, but we are his. And we are we are Christ because Jesus has won. Jesus. Is victorious. So, whether you're here this morning as a believer or an unbeliever, I, I want to say with great confidence that there will be a day in which you will face the Lord. Jesus will return. And if you're an unbeliever, I I get it. I think uh, you don't think Jesus is going to show up, or at the very least, you have some significant doubts. But here's the thing. Throughout Scripture, God keeps his promises. He has always kept his promises. He promises that he's going to return. Jesus promises that he's going to come back and those who are dead will rise and Christ will come in full victory. And how you see that day. How you see the day of the Lord, that's going to depend on where you stand in relationship to the Savior. I'm not going to quite read all of this last bit because it's another long chunk. But if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Malachi 4. Uh, Notice how he opens up. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be a stubble. That day will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So that will leave them neither root nor branch. This is the description of the unbeliever. This is the description of those who oppose God, those who do not fear God, those who do not revere God. Is they're going to burn like an oven. There will be a stubble They'll set them ablaze. There's going to be no root or branch. It's just this image of a forest decimated by wildfire. Once what, what was once tall and proud has come to nothing, disappeared. It's merely a memory. In other words, when Jesus returns, it's going to be a day like no other. Just, true justice will come forth, just as like we cannot imagine. Uh, the full weight of sin laid upon people, it will not be a pleasant day, but it will be one in which all people will acknowledge that Christ is King. It will be terrifying. But for the believers, as Malachi says, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down on the wicked. You shall rise with healing in its wings. The same fire that will burn and decimate will give us life. And then he uses this wonderful analogy like calves leaping from the stall. Now, when I was young, uh, my grandparents had cows. They had this big pasture next to their house, and I would sit on one of their uh, outside tables, and I would watch the cows almost the whole day, and I would moo at them because I was young. Um, It's not something I did as a teenager much. Um, But I would moo at the cows. And the cows are, they're cows. I never saw them leap once. I didn't see a cow leap until, actually, just a couple of years ago. Somebody posted a video online of cows finding grass for the first time. And if you can find that video, it's pretty amazing because they're jumping up and down like kangaroos. I mean, they're using all four legs, but they are still, they're jumping up and down. They're rolling around in this grass because they've never experienced it before. These, these calves, they, they've never seeing such goodness that is grass. And so there's this joy. It is pure celebration. And so when Jesus returns, if you are one of the ones who fear God, are you the ones, one of the ones who walk in the Lord and honor His name, when Jesus returns, it's a celebration. It is a march of victory. He says you'll tread on the witness. Wicked. The very, the very ones that oppose God and God's people. The evildoers who are prospering. And they will be vanquished. Conquered. And so the day of the Lord is, has this incredibly interesting dichotomy to it. And so I, I hinted at it with trying to understand it is tough. Uh, Because the way the prophets go about it, you you see this dichotomy as they continue to approach. One will say it is terrible, one will say it's amazing, and so it's hard to break down. So I was trying to come up with an illustration, and naturally I turned to Lord of the Rings, because uh, written by Tolkien, who's a man who feared God as well. And if you've seen the movies, there's this great moment in the second movie, Uh, the two towers. They are fighting in this castle called Helm's Deep. The orcs have broken through the gates. They are uh, knocking on the doors at the keep and the king, Theoden and Aragorn are about to ride out. And right before they do, Aragorn looks uh, to the dawn and sees a light coming through the window. And even though that they are surely defeated, they go out and charge. And it is a moment of pure bravery and it's very moving but also as they charge out they see uh, the good wizard Gandalf at the crest of the hill with an army at his side men who were formerly exiled have come back to fight for the king and they charge down the hill and the music hits the light shines and as you watch the movie it is hard not to be moved to tears Because it is a beautiful illustration of this clash of good versus evil. It's really an awe-inspiring scene, and good wins the day out. Now, if you are Theoden and Aragorn, if you're trapped in the keep and you're about to make this final charge, to see Candor is a sign of hope. To see that beacon in this army means we can win. And if you're the orcs banging at the door and you see this and you're thinking, what went wrong? How do we lose? And as brilliant as that scene is, it doesn't quite capture the fullness of this. Because the orcs stand and they try to fight and then they retreat. And evil stands to fight another day. But when Jesus returns, That's going to be a full victory. There is no retreat for those who oppose the Lord. There is no retreat for Satan and his minions. There's nowhere to go. They will be fully vanquished. Because unlike Superman, when God comes, he's going to come with an army. Malachi refers to God as the Lord of Hosts. Uh, Matter of fact, he uses that name for the Lord or that title for the Lord over 20 times in just four chapters. Lord of hosts. Now God has many names in Scripture. Ancient of Days, Deliverer, Creator, Father, Light of the World, uh, etc. But here, Malachi is essentially the one he's going with is the God of armies. The Lord of many. See, when, God, when Christ returns, he's not, he's not coming alone. He, he is a king. He is coming with his armies. Uh, at his disposal, he will have armies of angels. Now, if you look through Scripture, one angel causes trembling and fear. Matter of fact, so much so that Ezekiel, upon seeing an angel, is silent for a week. A prophet who, who knew God quite well can't handle it and is like, Nope, I'm going to go sit down for a little bit. Because angels are terrified. Yet when the Lord returns, the Lord of hosts, He's coming with an army of angels. Not one, but many. That's why Paul and John, and referencing Jesus' return, they, they mention that there will be trumpets. Uh, there's a fanfare that comes. It is yeah, Christ who marches. And there's there's no standing against this. How we relate to Jesus is how we see that day. It's how we walk through our life as we approach that day in which Christ returns. So we are blessed. We have been given the scriptures, we have heard the story told. We know that Jesus is going to be victorious. We know that Jesus is victorious. That's why Malachi ends ends this book with a quick prophecy of the coming of the Savior. He says, Elijah will return. Now really, it's most likely a reference to John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus. But at the Transfiguration, we, we saw Elijah return. Malachi wants the people to know. Malachi is encouraging those who fear God, who have come together and it's like, no, we will fear the Lord. That a Savior is coming. The one who redeems, the one who restores, the one who will vanquish evil is coming. And then Jesus, we have that Savior. There's always the plan from the very beginning. As soon as Adam and Eve bring sin in the world, God makes this promise of salvation. And Elijah's saying, no, it is still coming. And in Christ, we have our salvation. In Jesus, we have our hope. In Jesus, we have victory. It's not one of our own doing. It's not something that... Uh, we, that it's not to say that we are great or even deserving But Christ loves his people and he says, they are mine and he comes and he comes in victory to secure his people. So as we walk in the Lord, as we go our separate ways this week, whether we are beginning back in school or going to work or uh, seeing family or vacationing, and let us go, not focus solely on ourselves, but let us go out of fear and reverence of the Lord. And let us look at Christ and see not just, not just His love and mercy and grace, but also His majesty and His glory. So we can be moved to do so much more than just simply earthly desire. So we may celebrate the great victory that Christ has secured for his people. That we may look to the eternal life and say, yes, Lord, let us march that way. Let's walk together with knowledge and love of our victorious Savior. For God is great. He is mighty. And he is our king. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, I acknowledge there are days in which uh, I do feel defeated. I feel overwhelmed. But you are great. You are the Lord of hosts, you are mighty, and your Savior has redeemed your people. Lord, you claim us and you say that we are yours. And so let us look to you, and be yours, and honor you the way, Father, you desire to be feared and honored. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.